Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Week That Really Was for the week ending the 9th of February, 2024. My name is John McGurk. I am joined as ever by Sarah Ryan. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm good. I cannot complain. Uh, uh, it hasn't stopped raining, but it's fine. Yeah, it's been like that down here as well. It's been absolutely miserable um, all week. Um, so uh, hopefully it'll pick up. I was promised snow and ice, but it hasn't arrived as of yet. Yeah, um, I know. So was I. And I, tell, I whipped the kids up into a frenzy a bit. My mistake. And uh, now they're disappointed. <laughs> well, before we get into what we're talking about this week, I got an email this week, Sarah. I want to read it to you um, from Clodagh Van Ass, who was very kind to write into us. And she said, this in relation to the podcast, she said, I've spent the last two and a half hours cleaning up my son's projectile vomit from his bedroom carpet while he snuggled happily up beside my husband into my cosy spot in our bed. I, I thought I'd mention that to you because it sounds like something you might be familiar with. Yeah. Um, anyway, she just wants to thank us both for distracting her from the smell and yuck. And in particular, Sarah, the eloquent and entertaining delivery of your views. Um, and she criticizes me for not liking Jordan Peterson amongst other things. But it's a lovely email. We're very happy to receive it. Uh, thank you very much, Oda, for sending it in. Um, but yeah, she. I've been, I've been that mid. I've been that middle of the night puke cleaning soldier, and it's grim. And it's weird the way the men they just don't. They just it just doesn't wake them. It's so strange. It is well. We we famously can sleep through everything. You know yourself. Isn't that convenient? Anyway. We're going to talk about a few things this week. We're going to talk about the funding of NGOs because we haven't really talked about that in any depth. And then my colleague Gary Kavner, who is the deputy editor of Grip, did a piece this week on the NWCI, the National Women's Council of Ireland. That's worthy of some discussion, I think, Sarah. Uh, we're also going to talk about opinion polls. We're going to talk about uh, euthanasia. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's memory lapses. And if we have time, we'll get to one or two other things as well. But I want to start with this business of the National Women's Council of Ireland. As a, as a woman, Sarah, you're obviously familiar. This is the body that represents you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I'm, I'm probably more represented by the National Rifle Association than I am from the Irish National Women's Council. But go on. Uh, so the, the, they're in the news at the moment because they're basically leading the campaign for a yes vote in the March 8th referendums, which if you don't know by this stage are to do with removing the reference to women in the home in the constitution and redefining the definition of family in the constitution. Um, and the National Women's Council of Ireland uh, has had a campaign launch. They're printing leaflets, supporting up posters and so on and so forth. Uh, and my colleague Gary Kavanagh thought it was interesting to look into their funding. And what he's discovered is that Basically, in 2020, for example, 98.7% of their staffing costs were paid for with public money. Um, and over the, between the period between 2017 and 2022, um, 90% of their staffing costs, the people employed by this organization, it's money coming from the state, from the taxpayer, uh, and being put into the pockets of this campaigning organization. The whole article is on GRIP. You'll be able to find it. But like, is it really sustainable to have these groups campaigning in a referendum when it is the taxpayer paying them to do so, in your view? Well, I mean, of course it's sustainable. Like, look at the government. The government will prop that nonsense up all all the live long day. So, of course, it's sustainable. Whether it's right or not is, a quest, is another question. Like, the na what I have an issue with is an organisation that claims to be the national... I mean, think of the name. It's the National Women's Council of Ireland. And it's anything but. It's the National Council of Women who agree with us. And they've had countless events in the last couple of years. There was a a, a, a rally that they had outside Leinster House last year, the year before, I believe. And the speakers at it were laughable. It was laughable how if you're a, a pro-life, slightly conservative, any type, loads of different types of women, you're not represented by the National Women Council, Women's Council of Ireland. So. Is it appropriate for a state-funded body to be completely one-sided on a referendum in the way that they are? No. Is it sustainable? It's sustainable as long as we have the same donkeys with the same bullshit ideologies running the country. Yeah, it's very sustainable. It's worked out really well for them, actually. Yeah, I wonder. When I say sustainable, I mean politically sustainable because I, I do think more and more people are waking up to this. Like, as you say, it's the, it's the council for some of the women who agree with us. I mean, my wife, Orla, for example, is by no means, I mean, I married a liberal, and I, I mean this in the in the you know I think it's very important to disagree with people all the time, and it's intellectual. I don't know how we get on if we disagree and everything all the time, 
but she is definitely a, a, a liberal in the sort of normal sort of 2010, 2011 sense of the phrase. Um, yeah, well, we've discussed it before in the same way as my parents are, in the liberal in the sense that an actual liberal, which is somebody who's able to accept that other people don't agree with them on everything and shock her, even even able to be friends and get on with those people. That's that was that's a real 1990, 2000, early 2000s kind of concept. It's gone now. You have to hate the people who disagree with you because you're morally superior to them. But she's an old, old style liberal. There, there's still a couple of them about. Yeah, but the National Women's Council of Ireland doesn't represent her any more than it represents you. I mean, I think the, the point I'm getting at is that this isn't, it's not just a liberal organisation in the sense of, you know, just being sort of pro-choice on abortion and pro-liberal yeah. pro social positions. It's a radically left-wing organisation that claims yeah. to represent all of Irish womanhood. And what's more than that, it gets money from the state to represent legislatively all of Irish womenhood. So it is actually getting my taxes that I pay are going to the National Women's Council who then claim that they represent you and 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 seek, seek, seek legislation at all on your behalf, even though they don't represent you at all. I mean, their membership list is tiny. Um, their membership funding would, you know, if they had to rely on membership funding, i.e. people as in Irish women paying them to represent them, yeah. they, you know, our, our estimate, Gary's estimate is that they would have to close shop within six months. Um, and I don't know how politically sustainable that is because at some point it's going to become a political issue, I think. But they also are shameless. You know, on Twitter, they block people who ask hard questions. It's 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 a shameless, radical, radical ideologically led group that represents the people that they want to represent, trans women, ironically, Um and they only want to talk to people that they like and agree with. And then call you can call yourselves a different name. You know, I, I take your point that you're paying taxes, your tax money is paying, but like, how do you think I feel? I'm a woman. I'm supposed to be represented by them. So my tax money is going to a women's group that doesn't speak for me at all. And actually quite the opposite, because I think that not only do they not speak for me, they speak for people that I absolutely, with every fibre of my being, disagree with and will fight to my dying breath against like people who think that men should be in women's toilets and they shamelessly do it without any input from anybody who is my my kind of speaker like when's the last time the national women's council held an event that had a speaker that was even i mean let's call it a spade a spade even center at this point no it doesn't happen no it doesn't happen but i mean this is all being poured in i mean it, it, does it you know our politicians aren't blameless here. This money is all being poured into this organisation by uh, your old friends in Fianna Fáil and my old friends in Fine Gael. Like, the, 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 but they're afraid of their life to, to... This is the same politicians who had a trans woman, which, a man, as, as the speaker on International Women's Day last year. Like, who's the speaker going to be this year? Do you know what I mean? Like, sorry. And this was also a speaker who was on Twitter saying that women turfs, well, women like me, I suppose... Uh, should be hounded. Do you remember? I don't want to misquote it. No, I do, don't, don't, don't misquote just in case you get it wrong. But yes, this person has said had said multiple derogatory things about about, uh, about women who don't agree with him. Uh, I think it's about old fashioned women in general, really. Yeah. Um, so, but this was the, this was chosen as the this person was chosen as the speaker on International Women's Day. Like, and by the way, I've been pretty vocal about the fact that like. I'm no fan of International Women's Day at the best of times. And I think it's a, you know, a, a showboating nonsense that lets pe allows people to let themselves off the hook from ever actually doing anything that helps women in their day-to-day -day lives. Separate issue. The point is, these are politicians who are inviting that person in as their key speaker on International Women's Day. And that tells you how far out at sea we are in terms of having the, you know, frankly, again, testicular fortitude to put your hand up and say, guys, I think this is actually a load of shite. <laughs> Joe, it's funny you mentioned International Women's Day. I, I don't have a problem with it existing. I mean, I think it's, it's fine. There's international days for whole loads of things. December the 1st is World AIDS Day, so on and so forth. But I really think it's kind of weird how in Ireland in particular, it's kind of been turned into a secular religious holiday. Have you noticed that? Yeah. yeah. Like it has become a kind of you know, it, it's a, it's 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 an event. It's like atheist Christmas or something. Uh, you know, it, you you nearly have to put up the decorations now in advance. Um, that's what. The, but that's the irony of it is that the people who 
like, you know, I'm sure that there'll be a thesis or, you know, Freud would have a field day with the idea that people who were so anti-religious and so, um, you know, like anti-church now are developing these kind of like religious, you know, St. Bridget's Day, these kind of things. Like the article in the Irish Times, like talking about how she was the first to perform abortions and she was this and she was that. Like, spare us. Like, if you're actually that anti-religious, like, get your own sense. Yeah, we didn't talk about that last week, did we? Um, the no. St. Bridget's Day stuff. I mean, it is just, it's, it's again, it's it's kind of, it's, it's, it's more than laughable. It's kind of almost a little bit deranged, you know, because there's this kind of, like, they keep saying things like St. Bridget, goddess, saint. I mean, those two are mutually exclusive. You cannot be a goddess and a saint. Um, the, the 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 Roman Catholic Church, which which anoints saints, only recognizes one God. You can't be a goddess and a saint, and they are they're deliberately conflating the idea that there was, and we don't know for certain, but there may have been a, an ancient Celtic goddess called Bridget, with the actual flesh and blood human being saint, and then basically saying that the saint was a pagan goddess. It's it's so inherently dishonest and gross and vile that. It's kind of hard to put words on it, but it's also openly deranged. Like, yeah, I, I like to the extent that it feels insulting. In that, it's so deranged that you have to believe the people who are who are saying this stuff, knowing their heart and soul, it's not true, and it's mm-hmm. purely about trying to uh, to insult people who who, unlike me, um, have a great affinity for the actual St. Bridget. I never liked St. Bridget because I remember when I was in primary school, they tried to make us make a St. Bridget's cross out of rushes and I could not do it. It was utterly miserable. Um, <laughs> so I've always associated St. Bridget Day, St. Bridget with that. You've had an inverse since then. That useless activity. But there are a lot of people out there for whom it is a, 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 you know, a, a really important religious feast day who genuinely feel an affinity with our female patron saint. And they're being told, but, you, but it's just whitewashing. It's the opposite. Sorry, go on. No, you go. It's it's they do the opposite as well, which is that they'll find something in the very very far past of somebody they don't agree with to ruin them and cancel them. But they'll whitewash over other people to make them, you know, some kind of like pillar of you know some sort of virtue that they like today. And it's like, why can't you just find new people? Except that human beings are kind of flawed and complicated. And stop trying to make things into things to suit your agenda. It's just, it's 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 like you say, it's deranged. Well, have you ever heard of a fellow by the name of Elagabalus? No. Uh, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, to give him his full name. He was Roman oh, Emperor Roman yes. Emperor from two, two, the two, year 218 AD to the year 222 AD. Came Emperor at the age of 14 and then was murdered. Uh, at his 18th birthday. Very short-lived Roman emperor. Anyway, he was murdered and then after he was murdered, his enemies spread all these rumours for why they murdered him and one of them basically was that he dressed up as a woman and he had, you know, he had sexual relations with men and all that. They basically said he was a woman, he was unfit to rule. So the new line and serious academics are pushing this or people who were former, formerly, ser- uh, formerly no. serious no. academics. Elagabalus was actually the first transgender Roman emperor. Uh and it's it's this kind of thing of, of, of in order to justify what we believe in the present, we have yeah. to paint yeah. our beliefs onto the past. Um, yeah. And it's just extraordinary. I mean, poor Elagabalus probably didn't deserve to be murdered and definitely doesn't deserve to be posthumously held up uh, as, as something he wasn't any more than St. Bridget deserves to be held up as an abortion-performing uh, Celtic goddess. But that's, I, that, I, I, and all of this stuff has something in common, which is the National Women's Council cheers it on. Yeah, I think it's also, I, I think that kind of stuff is really demonstrative, really, of a, a kind of a a, a a lack of confidence in some of your arguments, really. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't care if somebody thought the same way as me in 200 years AD or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's, it's not the kind of, slam dunk argument you think it is but they, they didn't i mean the people like this is a thing when you're wrestling with history there are people out there who you can admire who did terrible things because yeah. it was by the standards of their times like the famous example is thomas jefferson who wrote the De- u.s declaration of independence was not only a slave owner but somebody who impregnated i think a bunch of female slaves and generally behaved terribly but yeah. you can you can recognize that that was 
in keeping with the standards of the time. He was living by the moral values of the age in which he lived. And we can condemn those moral values without having to tear down all his statues or yeah. pretend he was something he wasn't. Um, and you can admire his writings without admiring his personal life. But but now you can't. Everybody has to be either deified or Satanized. You know, you're, you're either... You're, it's, 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 I mean, I talk all night about this, so we won't, but it's, it's. Then it's much easier than to be people like you and me, because we, we, you know, I, I, we can't be, do you know what I mean? Like if you're a really, if you work for the National Women's Council of Ireland and you're, you know, a, a big pillar of this kind of nonsense, you must be constantly have a low level of anxiety and fear that some stupid thing you actually said when you were 15 will come out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? Because there's it's it's a religion. It is. So, so you know, like they won't be forgiving of something stupid you said about I don't know a man wearing a dress or something when you were fifteen. No one will, that, that that you'll be hacked to death by the mob. So it must be scary to be up up on that high horse. Like. The other thing is the arrogance of it, which is the belief that we have sort of perfected humanity now, and and yeah. and future future generations won't look back at us. And say we're barbaric. I mean, I always think that's a very risky assumption to make, especially when it comes to things like I, I use the example sometimes of the way we eat, cook and eat octopuses. I think it's very possible that in fifty years' time or a hundred years' time, we realize that octopuses are really hyper intelligent creatures, and that our treatment of them has been barbaric. Um, and Do people you, will look back. Really? At us. Yeah. Why? Because they're so clever. They're incredibly clever. Oh, I'm a mass murderer then. Well, shame on you. I've been going to Greece since I was a child. And I've even shot them myself with a spear gun at night underwater, John. I'm afraid. You are the Thomas Jefferson of our age, Sarah Ryan. You are. I, 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 I didn't realise there had some kind of personality. Oh, yeah. They're, 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 they're incredibly intelligent and apparently very emotionally sensitive creatures. Oh, now I feel bad. There's a huge controversy in Portugal about the expansion of octopus farms for that reason. But that's not why people listen to this podcast. If you want to read about it, go on Google Octopus Farms in Portugal and you hear right all about the, the, the scandal. But back to the National Women's Council. I mean, I think the other point here is that this is just one example. The NWCI is one example of a, a campaigning organization where 98% of its funding for its wages is being paid for by the taxpayer. But it's one of 32,000 NGOs in the country. Oh my God! Uh, now it should be said, in fairness, that the the majority of those are probably small, little, like you know, community, um, tidy town organizations or whatever. But we are spending billions every year pouring money into these organizations, and a lot of them, not all of them, maybe not even a majority, but a lot of them are actively campaigning on behalf of God knows who, like the the Alcohol Awareness Alcohol Action Ireland, which is literally set up by the Department of Health to campaign for restrictions on alcohol and doesn't represent anybody except the Department of Health. So why is the government spending money on an organization to lobby itself? Good question. I mean, if you want to restrict alcohol, just do it. You, do, you don't need an organization to tell you why it's a good idea that you should regulate alcohol um, if that's what you want to do. And you're clearly funding it because that's what you want to do. Otherwise, why would you be funding it? Um, it's it's an ex and, and if you're going to fund it because your argument is, oh, well, the alcohol... Uh, companies will create a, an NGO or, an, or or lobby on their behalf so they need to be balanced out, then why doesn't that apply across the board? Where is the organization lobbying for lower taxes? Where is the organization lobbying for the death penalty? You know, why aren't you funding every political argument uh, if you think if you think it's a good idea to fund in inverted commas civil society to make these arguments for people? It's not. It's just politicians trying to shape the debate by paying people to make arguments for them and uh, yeah or in some or in some cases not even that not even not even that just politicians too scared or too lazy to take you know to take to challenge this anyway let's you talk know, a little bit about NGOs do have but yeah just to finish like the reality of it is is that you're a politician and you have like a hobby horse in a certain issue or whatever like NGOs have power like they have power they like they can you know, they they liaise with media, they can leak stories, but you know, like blah, 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 like they're they're powerful. And and the media never holds them to account. Have you ever no. noticed that? Yeah. Nobody will ever ask I mean, nobody will ever ask a representative of the National Women's Council on a on a late night television show or on a radio show whether it's appropriate that they're using state money to campaign. Oh, um, if only. 
um, it, it, they won't be asked that because the, the the media has a good relationship with the NGOs because the NGOs provide content. That's the other toxic role they have in our democracy, which is that you can always rely on them in the middle of August when the news is slow. Some NGO will put out a report saying poverty is up and there's your news story for the day. Yeah. Um, so, so, so there's this kind of codependent relationship with the media as well that that gives these people status that they they don't deserve and they haven't earned, in my opinion. But let's talk a little bit about the referendums in general. Do you, where I mean, we're now literally one month. Today's the eighth. We report on the eighth. It's going out on the ninth. But it's one month from today until till polling day. And um, the polls at the weekend showed about a fifteen point lead for yes. Do you think that's soft? Do you think it's I think it's soft, but I'm definitely less confident than I was. I thought it was going the wrong way. And I think that it's, I think the the turnout will be low. And I think that it's, it hasn't captured the imagination of people at all. I think that Michael McDill writing letters in the Irish Times is doing huge damage to the yes side. But whether that will be enough, I don't know. But I, I think that percentage is soft because I think that most people who are voting yes, I, I haven't heard any kind of good argument for voting yes yet. But there's no narrative, there's no story as to why to vote yes. I had an argument with Neve uh, Evrian, who is my colleague uh, in, in Grip this week, because I wrote a piece on Monday saying if it passes, these are three reasons why. And I said that there is an argument for voting yes. And the argument for voting yes, particularly on the women in the home one, is that the language is outdated and sexist. Loads like, of the language in the, in the Constitution is outdated. I, I, I know, but we're not voting on all of the language in the Constitution. Or we're, we're, not, we're, they, we will, if they have their way, hack away at it every year. Yeah, I, 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 so just let me, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to argue, I'm not, I'm not voting yes, I'm not making the, the argument. I'm just saying that if you're a low-information voter, that phrase in the Constitution, to the neglect of her duties in the home, and that's what it says, to the neglect of her duties in the home, will sound to some people like it says that the because it does that the that the uh, that a woman has duties in the home, and says no such thing about a man. And I think there will be some people who casually won't pay that much attention, maybe until the last week, read that on the information leaflet and go, yeah, that shouldn't be in the constitution. That's awful, and will vote yes. Now I haven't met one of them yet, but I'm just saying if the polls are correct, I think that's that's one reason. That would explain the yes vote because it, it's, it's people wander down to the polling station and figure out down while they're down there like that. Like, do you know what I mean? So you and I are very political people, Sarah, and I think there's a lot of people out there who aren't. And are you going to vote in that thing? Oh, I better go vote because it's my civic duty. What's it about? Oh, I'm not women in the home. We'll, we'll get rid of stuff about women in the home. Yeah, I think I think we'll do that. Uh, it's a very depressing thought, but that's the nature of democracy. I think. Um, I, I tend to think I, I tend to think still on balance the referendums will be defeated, but if they're passed, I think that'll be the reason why. Yeah, I don't know. It's I, it's getting harder to because I think people aren't engaged in it at all. There's no real. It hasn't been any debate. There's not a kind of a. It's it's you know it 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 makes no difference to your life either way. Um, makes no difference to anybody's life either way. Um, so. Um, because it's not stopping women from working outside the homes, and it won't, ch- so it won't change anything. But yeah, I, I think the fact that people aren't talking about it at all is making me lose my nerve. Because I was kind of confident that it was probably going to be a no, but now I'm not so sure. It's funny. I haven't. Uh, and this is this is an, uh, it's very dangerous to say things like this because if this thing ends up passing, it'll show how out of touch I am, um, or maybe just the segment of society in which I marinate, but I haven't actually met somebody who told me in person that they were voting yes yet. Obviously, I know some yes voters because they're publicly declared as yes voters, but they're not who you'd call normal people. They're people like Alison O'Connor, who writes for Sunday Times and so on. I know I know she's voting yes, but I haven't met a sort of normal person with an everyday normal job who's told me, oh yeah, I'm voting yes. Maybe I just haven't asked enough people. But uh, maybe that's a straw in the wind. Maybe, maybe there will definitely be a lot of yes votes. So, but I'm just saying, I'm not. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound like that person who, after Richard Nixon won 49 states, says I don't know anyone who voted for him. Um, Pauline Kale, I think was her name. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at. I haven't I haven't actually met a, a normal everyday yes voter yet, to my knowledge. But I, but I, yeah, but I think you might be right that like the, you you know, there's a lot of people who are haven't even given it a second thought yet, and that's. Yes. Um, I still think my prediction is that Michael McDowell is very rarely on the losing side in referendums. And I think there's an awful lot of sort of sensible people who will just say, mm, we don't need to do this. 
Um, and I actually thought my old friend Declan Ganley made a good point today on social media where he said that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a wisdom in voting no because there is doubt. And if this is really important, we can come back and do it at a later stage. There's absolutely no need to rush into this. I thought it was a, it was a, persuasive, a pers- persuasive line of thought, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, speaking of opinion polls, there was another one today in the Irish Times. What did you think of it? I think if I was if I was working in Sinn Fein's press office, I'd be getting pretty nervous. What I what I'm more what I'm more fascinated by is that Sinn Fein don't really seem to be any doing anything to respond to this free fall in their vote. I'm glad you said that because I have a piece on this tomorrow, which is why I think they have a problem, and I think they have to knock on a lot of doors to figure out what to do because I'm not sure which flank they're losing the votes on. There are an awful lot of people who listen to this podcast and read Grit who will say, it's immigration. It is people annoyed that they're not taking a hard enough line with the government on immigration and they're going to independence and they're going to smaller right-wing parties and they're going to vote give the government a bloody nose on immigration. That's a theory. The yeah. problem with that theory is it's missing one crucial element, which is show me where the 6% have gone and where there has been a meaningful rise in support for obviously anti-immigration politicians. Because in the Red Sea poll, you could say, oh, well, independents have gone up a bit. But in today's Irish Times poll, it was the Greens and Social Democrats who benefited from the fall in Sinn Féin vote. Um, so I'm wondering, if you're in Sinn Féin and you're, doing, you're properly thinking about this, you've got to ask yourself, is some of this people who are actually on the left and who are really annoyed that we're not being angry enough about immigration uh, and, and going hard enough against the protesters and the arson and all of that stuff and who are jumping on board more kind of purist left-wing alternatives like the Greens and Social Democrats. So I think Sinn Féin's problem is that they can't be certain where their votes are going. So it's very hard to form a coherent strategy to fix it. But I think, I mean, I think ultimately... You know, if you're if you're doing a report card for Sinn Féin and, you, you know, you, you're not trying to kind of second guess the polling that much, even though, you know, there has been polling that shows that a large proportion of the country are very concerned about immigration and think that there is too much immigration. So, like, you know, that, there's that. But even if you weren't trying to second guess the polling in a, in and of itself and, you're, and I, as a non-Sinn Féin voter, was just taking a look at them and really genuinely trying to be objective the report card for them as an opposition party wouldn't be good. They're not, you know, they 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 feel like they agree with the government on more than they disagree with them. There's, I've said before, they feel tired and jaded for people who are supposedly preparing to govern. They're, I think that supporting the two referendums was a huge mistake um, for themselves. And they're just starting to kind of blend into... You know, as Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have become more lefty and 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 kind of, you know, middle on the of the road on a number of issues, I think that Sinn Fein have just started to kind of blend into just being like the rest of them. And when you when you and the, and I remember very clearly this happening with Labour, yeah, uh, you know, around 2011, they got into government with Fianna Gael, as you remember. And it was Labour this and Labour that. And people, you know, who I'm quite close to, I remember voting for Labour and thinking that Labour was wonderful. And the absolute vitriol towards Labour really fast when it turned out they didn't have all of the answers that they claimed to and their moral superiority didn't extend to not making cuts and making hard decisions. You know, they were hated, absolutely hated. They're still living with the legacy of that. And I think that when you place yourself on this mar- high moral, you know, um, whatever the word is, um, higher moral plane than the than everybody else, as Labour did and as Sinn Féin have done, but then you don't deliver and you don't argue and you don't come up with ideas and you kind of sit there waiting to govern, people see through it. Yeah. And so, I mean, if I was sitting down with people with Mary Lou and saying, and she was saying, what do we do next? I, like, you, you better start carving out some niches for yourself on a couple of the key issues that are affecting people's lives day to day. You better start doing it now. Because ultimately, I was never going to vote for Sinn Féin. But what am I getting for my vote? If I vote for Sinn Féin in the next general election and vote Je- Sinn Féin into government, what am I getting out of that government that's going to be different from what I'm getting today? Yeah, as, you're, ta- as you're talking there, I, I'm, I'm just political I- and you're political and I don't know. Yeah, as you're talking there, I'm just trying to think of like distinctive Sinn Féin policies that exist that I can name. I'm, I'm not saying they don't have any. I'm just saying me as somebody who's fairly engaged with politics, 
uh, write about it for a living, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of Sinn Féin policies that I can remember that are clearly distinctive from the government. They said they'd have, I think they said that they would get rid of higher bonds of property tax or something, wasn't there something about that? Yeah, they'd introduce a wealth tax. That, yeah. th- those are about two that I can think of. Um, and they're not exactly particularly transformative. Uh, neither of them would affect me. I'm below the threshold for a wealth tax and I think below the threshold for the higher band of property tax. Not because I don't have a decent sized house. I do, but I, I don't live in Dunleary. And it's a strange thing for them to be doing, to to be... Yeah, I know. It didn't fit. Um, yeah, there's no... They're, they're the same on all of the kind of social justice warrior stuff as all the other parties. There's no carving out of any any interesting kind of vision for Dublin or for Ireland in general, whatever. The solution um, for health and education is just more money. Yeah. So what's the point? Um yeah, I think I think you're 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 on to something there. They, they they've lost a sort of edginess that they had. I, I don't think voting for them is as much and I think this might be the the, the real key thing, which is that I, I think some of the six percent they've lost, whether it's been to the left or to the right, are people who were attracted to the Sinn Féin brand because it was a middle finger to the system. I don't think it's a middle finger to the system anymore. I think those people are looking for middle fingers elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and that might be voting for people for profit or it might be voting for the Irish Freedom Party. I don't know. Um, but it, like, there, there, there's, definitely, there's definitely been like, their blade has been dulled a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I, I I think they're suffering from the same problem the rest of Irish politics suffer from, which is an absolute unwillingness to think about things. You know, there's no. What I want to hear is is an actual concrete plan of what are you going to do and what is what what are your actions going to accomplish, and with some thought behind it. I don't necessarily even mind if I disagree with some of them. I'd like to hear a a vision. What is Ireland going to look like in ten years after a Sinn Féin government, and why? There's none of that. And, and also, John, you know and I know that when you're in opposition, you've got the time for that kind of thinking. You've got the time for, you know, like conversations, you know, research and things. But when you start governing, there's a pace there that, you know, I'm not saying that when you're governing, you can't sit down and have a think about things. But, you know, these guys should be brimming with ideas, but the only hungry thing- to rule, ready to take the thing over, like giving you the spiel about what they do in their first 100 days, blah, blah, blah. It's, fu- it's, it's funny, I'm sorry for cutting across you, but it's funny, as you're saying that, I'm thinking they do have that in one area, which is when it comes to a United Ireland. Like, they, they have that sort of first 100 days, we're going to do X and we're going to extend it across border Y and we're going to go to the minister in London and say we want a date for a referendum. And, and all that stuff, because they, they really care about that. That's what motivates them. I, I think they overestimate how much that, how many people think uh, prioritize that issue. It, well, well, yes, but I think it's more evidence of the fact that they prioritize it, so they're really thinking about it. Whereas I don't think Sinn Fein think as hard about health and housing. I really don't. In poor Owen O'Brien, I, I haven't heard a convincing housing policy from him, even though I, I don't dispute his intelligence or the work he puts in. But it all seems to be just more of what the government are doing. You know, that's that's restrict rents more, let's uh, put more money into building new social housing. But I haven't heard him address any of the actual practical issues like that, which is where are you going to get the builders on? You know, and I, I also haven't heard him ask that, by the way, which shows you where the where the media is at. Um, yeah. You know, the you know the Irish media, when it comes to this stuff, they will, if you say, I'm going to spend 300 million on a housing plan or, or 3 billion on a housing plan, they'll say, oh, where are you going to get the money? No one in the Irish media ever has the basic wit or intelligence to go, where are you going to get the people to build the houses? Because they're, they're not there. That's why we have a housing crisis. Mm. But, but that's a that's a, a criticism of the media. Yeah, I think I think the poll is fascinating in the Irish Times for for obviously the Sinn Féin reason, but also I'm intrigued by the increase in the Green Party vote. Mm. I just think that's just a kind of a weird as a mistake. Do you think? Because I think the Green Party are. I I, I am a I'm a huge. Do you know the way? Like I'm a Man United fan and and Keith your husband's a Liverpool fan. Um, but I even shed a bit of a tear when Jurgen Klopp announced he was going to retire because the man, even though I've hated every single thing he's done for Liverpool, I, I can't deny his genius as a football coach. And I kind of feel that way about the Greens. 
uh, in that I hate everything they do for the they're doing to the country, but I also kind of respect it in a way in that this is a political party that has gone into government with a very set agenda, all of which I hate, but has ruthlessly enacted it piece by piece by piece. I mean, we had the announcement just today that cars are going to be banned from Dublin city centre by the by the autumn. Oh, don't even get me started on that. Well, I know it's awful, but it's it's. If if I said to you three years ago the Greens are going to accomplish that, you'd have said, "Nah, there'll be massive republic, or public won't wear that." There'll be kept. no, they've gotten it through. I, I, you know, they're, they're currently in a row with Michael O'Leary over uh, expanding Dublin Airport. Um, Michael O'Leary is reasonably pointing out that if the Dublin Airport doesn't expand, that'll mean more demand with the same number of planes, which means prices will go up for consumers, it'll damage the economy, and the Greens are like, "Now we can't afford the carbon emissions staying as it is." But they are ruthless. And I, I, you know, they don't. This is the thing: our electoral system doesn't require you to be popular with the public at large to win seats. It just requires that you be popular with the people who are disposed to agreeing with you. And I think there's there might be at long last a little bit of recognition on the left that the Greens are the most effective left wing party of government that we've ever had, ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that wishing that they weren't, but I think you have to. I mean, Eamon Ryan, I think, is one of these people. He's like. Um, the BBC had a series years ago called I, Claudius, about the Roman Emperor Claudius. And there's a scene in it where Claudius, who's portrayed as a half-wit, finally becomes emperor. And he stands up and he has this line. He says, well, if I'm a half-wit, how is it I've survived to middle age with half my wits when thousands have died with all of theirs intact? And I kind of think that way about Eamon Ryan. I think he's played the he's played the fool for years and never been anything, anything but a very capable politician. I think playing the fool act, people people fall for it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm a kind of a, I'm sick of a lot of them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I am too. But I think you have to analyze uh, what's going on in the country. And I think I want to emphasize in case there are listeners who are misunderstanding me. I I would like to see the Greens turfed out of government in the morning and never let back near it, but not because they're ineffective, but because they're effective um, in doing But terrible. I. Uh, it was funny because it came out the other day and I, um, not that I, not that I needed, were nothing to do with me being there, but I was in the um, criminal court in Park, Park 8th Street uh, during the week and um, I was in there, I left Park 8th Street at about quarter to one and it took me until quarter past two, so an hour and a half to get home to Malahide because of all of the nonsense and decisions and stuff that's been done on this green agenda to city, to the city centre. And and literally that was the day they were coming out with the proposal that you won't even be able to, you know, go into town. I just think, you know, it's all very well to say, you know, oh, you know, use this public transport and use that or whatever but at the end of the day like that just doesn't suit everybody that doesn't work like I could I was uh, last Saturday went to Ranla Keith and I went to Ranla to a restaurant we were going to drive the car park it in a car park over on the south side and then get the Lewis could we get a space in any of the Lewis stations that we went to no we eventually drove to Ranla left the car there and we're like right we'll collect it tomorrow I was got so I got the dart from Malahide with my three kids because Keith was out. Uh, train comes along. It was there was only one. There was, this was the last train for another hour and a bit. So I get on the train. It's completely packed. No seats. This train only goes to Connolly. Off the train at Connolly with the three kids. Twenty five minutes for the next train to go to Sydney Parade. Also jammed. Like talk about just a complete and utter nightmare the train stations were closed from Dunleary on so my dad had to drive to Sydney parade to collect me to drive me to my car and I just thought never again like it's all very well to talk about all these you know oh public transport but it isn't there every time you try and use it there's some problem so yeah you know me me going to work in town and driving back and forth in an hour and a half. It's done on purpose to try and slow you down to you'll eventually use public transport. But I'm not going to not drive towards my job in town if because I have to be back for a pickup for my kids at quarter past two. And what and if one of them gets sick, I'm not going to go walk all the way down the keys to get the dart, take and wait for a dart for 25 minutes. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't match. And, you know, it, it, these are just people making these decisions. Eamon Ryan lives in Dublin Bay South. He doesn't live in Malahide. 
So well, he can walk to work. Yeah. And the other thing is how devastating this is going to be for the city centre. Because yeah. you already have the issue with Blanchestown Shopping Centre and Liffey Valley and Dundrum, which are all places, what do they all have in common? Massive car parks. Kildare Village, yep. massive car park. So, you know, if you're going somewhere to do shopping and spend money, and all those places also now have restaurants, and they're great restaurants in Dundrum, they're great restaurants. Um, well, I wouldn't say they're great re- restaurants in Kildare Village. There's, there, there will be. Um, and and Dublin city centre will be left. To, we really see it happening. I mean, the all of this is connected to the rise in crime and antisocial behaviour in Dublin city centre, and the the fall of falling number of commercial units because people don't want to go there. They can't go there. It's a pain in the arse. When you get in there, you're likely to be mugged. Why would you want to do it? Um, and and the the Greens can't see what they're doing to the city that they profess to love. Um, yeah. And um, meanwhile, you can take your car into most big American cities and they're doing fine. Um, so it's, yeah. Look, people voted them into office and I think we'll end this segment by saying voting has consequences and you, you live with them. And there are a lot of people out there who voted Greens at the last election thinking that they were doing it to save the Badgers. Badgers weren't <laughs> under threat. Turns out your car was. So, um, anyway... Uh, to change the subject completely, uh, turns out I can enter female Irish dancing competitions now. Yep. Are you excited? I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I want to wear one of those spangly dresses. Although I think I'll probably have to wear underwear as well because I think you kick up your legs and stuff, don't you? I wouldn't know. The point is that um, you're now um, able to enter the female uh, Irish dancing competitions um, even if you're not female um, and you can compete. And this is, you know, a huge win for men's rights. And, Women, um, women's rights. Sorry. And, um, you know, anybody who says anything about it is a bit, so, you know, we better not. But, um, you know, it's just more of, of of the same kind of nonsense, if you ask me, um, virtue signaling and, um, you know, that you can compete in any gender category you want. Brilliant. Yeah. Ben had a story during the week. That it's not just going in one way, because Ben has a story during the week that uh, – the, the Irish state is now officially offering menopause advice to men um, on the basis that men can get the menopause too. And I mean, I was wondering, because I am, as you know, turning 40 in a couple of weeks, I was wondering why I was starting to feel a little bit down in myself and now I know why. Hot sweats, John. Hot sweats. Hot no, but it's, it's, mom. Is there a point at which we're going to start saying stop? You see, I think it's one of those ones where the public attitude is they roll their eyes. Um, and it's one of those ones. I mean, I, I, we live in a country where there is the constant tyranny of the motivated minority, which yeah. is that if you are motivated enough to really care about this stuff, then you're probably drawn to careers in public policy and you get into um, whatever organization it is and you start enacting this agenda. And people who, like, in all honesty, am I motivated to join some organization just to insist that gender is binary? Probably not. Like, who wants to go to a whole bunch of meetings just to enact a stupid policy, stop a stupid policy from being enacted? It doesn't affect me, really. Um, because it, uh, this is the thing. And, and I mean, this is what liberals always say. It doesn't affect you. And you're correct. It doesn't. It doesn't I don't think that that's actually, I think that that's not true. But go on anyway. Well, I was going to say, it doesn't affect me personally that, you know, that some lad is dancing in a dress in an Irish dancing competition calling himself a woman. That doesn't necessarily directly affect me. But it does annoy me. Like, it just is evidence to me of kind of the fundamental unseriousness of our society. Like, I, I, it's one of those ones where I think, you know, if my great-grandparents or yours or anyone else's could come yeah, to 2023... And look around. I mean, there'd be th- some things they'd be really impressed by, like, you know, smartphones. But then if you told them that, you know, men can become women now by signing that form, they would think that the country had been lost. I know. Welcome to 2024. Good to see you. Sorry, no ho- hoverboards, but chicks with dicks in the changing room. <laughs> Sorry, no flying cars. <laughs> no flying cars. <laughs> Welcome. You'll enjoy it. It's great. Uh, it's great. And, uh, and Amy Ryan says we'll all be riding bikes again in five years. So we, we you missed the really good bit. Um, yeah. Sorry. But, but it's also, the, it's it, yeah, you roll your eyes or whatever. But it's like, you know, the Irish Dance and Governing Body um, called the Commission Larinke Gaelica 
has um, said that they made this decision after considerable internal and external discussion. I bet you you did, yeah. I bet you there was loads of people in that discussion on the one side. I'll let you guess which side wasn't represented in those discussions. I guarantee. Do you know what I mean? We, 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 you know, no one's really been talking about Irish dancing for a while. So we thought, what's the best thing that can get us a bit of attention? I know. Let's be woke. What's what's funny is it all goes in one direction because I I have yet to see a case of a biological female announce that she's become a man and then demand to uh, get a trial with the Man United men's team. Like, it doesn't go in that direction. Or, 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 you know, ask to be in the um, men's changing room. That's another thing that, to my knowledge, has never happened. Or a man's prison. Uh, uh, Exactly. Another thing that hasn't... Because they say that they're because they're they're worried about men, but we're not allowed to be worried about men. Is the way that works? Yeah, it's 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 one of those ones which 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 only flows in in one direction, um, which underlines two things. As you say, first of all, the hypocrisy because um, <laughs> the new kind of men they're allowed to be worried about men, but the old kind of women aren't. And also, it's a it's an admission of the physical and gender differences because. Exactly. Nobody, nobody is even remotely concerned about like a biological woman winning a men's uh, swimming race. So it's 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 women who are bearing the burden of this. It's it's women who are who are who are dealing with the consequences of this, and it's also being pushed primarily by women. It's bizarre. Yeah, um, because because the be kind and you know whatever and 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 like you know we've said before like I, I don't want to personalize it. I don't want to think be cruel to any individual but um you know my daughter is nearly two five six seven eight years from now like i i, I simply don't want her to be in a changing room with a biological man mm. and i'm sorry if that hurts people's feelings but that's the way i feel about it that's the way i feel about it i think that's the way most women feel about it um even a lot of the ones who are openly saying they're pushing this stuff. I mean, I, 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 I think it's the way a lot of women feel about it. Anyway, we won't, we won't dwell on it. You spotted a story in Holland that bothered you during the week. Yeah, this is just so weird, right? So basically, Lauren Ho- Hove, H-O-E-V-E. Hove. Um, Hove. She is a, was a 28-year-old um, sufferer of ME. And um, she wrote her last tweet last week um, to say goodbye because she was euthanized um, over the weekend and I just thought like what a bizarre um, world we live in first of all put to the side like Emmy is and I don't I'm not a doctor but can, Emmy is considered to be quite a controversial condition in some circles in terms of you know what it is or isn't um, a 28 year old woman you know kind of saying goodbye on Twitter and like being euthanized is I don't know like just very depressing and scary um she posted a meme and she said enjoy a last morbid meme and um it was a picture of a child with sunglasses on giving the thumbs up and she said this will be my last tweet thanks for the love everyone I'm going to rest a bit more and be with my loved ones enjoy a last morbid meme from morbid meme from me and it's says me getting euthanized and it's a three-year-old child with sunglasses on giving a thumbs up with a doctor like is there not something really dark and sad about that it's autistic as well of course yeah it's it's incredible how how often these things overlap how how, how often autism overlaps with a lot of things we talk about on this show for sure Uh, um and um yeah look I, i i don't i think me is as i understand it can be a very painful condition you wouldn't wish it on your your worst enemy but there are many people who 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 live for many years with it um, and I, I actually don't blame Miss Hova, that's her, how you pronounce her name, for the decision she took. But I, I, I do blame a society that condones it. And I do actually, the one thing I blame her for, um, I haven't said I don't blame her for the decision she took, but I blame the glorification of it. I think, I think that the sort of, you know, I'm setting an example to the world by saying goodbye, this is my last tweet, isn't it really dramatic and fantastic way to go out and isn't there I, I remember reading an article Sarah years ago about, about um, the contagion of suicide because oh. where I grew up in County Monaghan a couple of times in my youth there were, there were 
what you call a suicide cluster. And I yeah. remember reading an article that a lot of the times people who take their own lives um, do are, are engaged in something I think the writer called the funeral delusion, which is the, I can't wait to see them at my funeral. Um, you know, I can't wait to see all the flowers. I can't wait to see how sad they'll all be, those people who bullied me. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to really enjoy punishing them. That's not in every case, but in some cases. Yeah. And I'm not saying Lauren Hova was seeking to punish people, but there is a sort of like, there's a glorification of it. Um, and of course, the sad fact is you won't be at your own funeral to see the reaction or see yeah. the read or see people crying or whatever, unless you're a very religious person. And I, I doubt a very religious person will go down that road. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it, 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 I think the glorification of that process, uh, it, there is definitely, the one thing I know for certain is that there is some young person out there who has seen what she has done and thought to themselves, I'd like to do that, 100%. And, and one is probably cutting it very fine. Maybe but also, why is Emmy different? Well, why is Emmy any different from depression? So, what's to say that somebody doesn't say I've been depressed, I've tried drugs, nothing works, I'm too depressed, and now I want to be euthanized? Do you know? I was I was like, watching. I think I mentioned on this show a couple of weeks ago. I was watching uh, watching the BBC's excellent reality TV show, The Traitors, which ended. Um, and there was a girl in that, um, the the runner up, um, who has a stoma. There's a 24 year old girl. And she, she has a stoma. And a stoma is, for people who don't know, it's basically when your, your large intestine has to be removed. And there's basically a hole in your stomach and you wear a bag all the time. And out of that comes your your um, fecal matter. And I think in her case, her urine as well. And I was right. thinking, that is bravery. That is courage. To, to go on national television as a very attractive young woman in her early 20s with a condition like that. But I think for lots of reasons, a lot of young women would feel was the end of their life. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what we should be glorifying is people who who face these things with courage and bravery and 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 don't give up. And I think there's been a fear of saying to people, don't give up, don't quit. Because mm -hmm. euthanasia and suicide, and I feel really strongly about this, and I'm sorry if it's politically incorrect, it's quitting. That's what it is. You're quitting on yourself. You're quitting on your family. You're quitting. And I know there are people who will listen to this and get really offended at me because, God forbid, somebody in their life took their own life. And, and if that happened, you have my deepest sympathy. But I also think it's really important in society to say, this isn't a road you should go down. Um, and, I, I, and I think when you do go down that road, you end up with situations like 28-year-old women saying, this is my last tweet. Put me down like I'm a dog. Yeah, I mean, like... Uh I do know somebody who, who who committed suicide and it's um an old friend and it's <clears throat> something that really, really took me by surprise. And um it was also the night I had my daughter, so it was a real strange feeling. Um but he, he, like I, I, I don't think I don't think I remember speaking to another friend, a, a mutual friend of ours as well who was a doctor and she was saying like, you know, suicidal ideation is, 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 is almost incurable. Like if you're set on committing suicide, you will, and you're, you're done. You're, you've decided that that's what you're doing or whatever. And it's not something that we can ever understand. Who we shouldn't really try too much to understand, but you are leaving. And I think that, that there's, uh, there's a finality to it that a lot of people don't understand and, and, you know, like to your point about uh, like my funeral, my this and my that. And I think that like we should be more honest about having conversations and not be afraid to be more honest about the finality of it. Yeah. And, and to be clear in terms of what I'm getting at here, and I, I want to say this again because the, the people who, who will have misheard me or taken me up wrong. I'm not saying that people who commit suicide are selfish or anything like that. Yeah. What, what I am saying is that the way we talk about it as a society, um, I, I think we are sometimes too tolerant of the glorification of it. Um, I have always felt, for example, that when a young person dies from suicide, one of the things that kind of annoys me and bugs me is the big, massive funeral. That, that, that has always bugged me. It's not that I think they should have a quiet funeral, they should be ashamed, but it's almost like this person's life is now being celebrated. And I think the message that sends to others 
who are maybe feeling lonely or depressed or feel that they're not loved is that look at the love this person is getting. Yeah, but that's a tricky one, John, because a of lot course of... The, of course it's a tricky one. I'm not like, denying it's a tricky funerals, one. Funerals are as much for the people left behind as they are about the person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if somebody dies by suicide, you know, they've ultimately... Like, in a lot of cases, and certainly in cases of... I know more than one person who's died of suicide. It's like they've... It, you know, it wasn't a whim on a Saturday night. It was a long, long, drawn-out process of, you know, depression and whatever... And I think that their family want their life to be about more than that struggle. And so the funeral and and and, and the reality as well is that the younger you are dying, probably the bigger the funeral. So funerals, people, young people who commit suicide tend to have big funerals just by the, like by that fact, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But the, that the family want their life to be about more than suicide. But I take your point that it can be. I know someone um, who grew up in Australia and he lived in kind of the middle of nowhere and I remember distinctly him telling me about a kind of a um I think he was in a boarding school but anyway um there was a couple of suicides and he said that the first um suicide they had all these counselors come in and they talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. and then there was another and I think there was three and he said that by the third one they were like stop thinking about it and that yeah. there was a complete shift in the kind of approach they took for initially the approach was let's talk about it let's everybody talk about it let's like put like shine as much light on this as possible and then when there was a couple more they were like don't think about it too much in a nice way if you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. in a kind of a that if you get too much in your head about this it's dangerous yeah so I I definitely think there's a contagion there was a city a town in Wales wasn't it um years ago um can't remember the name. There was a documentary about it, and they had a massive outbreak of of um, of basically suicides, where it became a contagion. And they did a documentary about it. And this documentary crew went and interviewed young people, asked them how they felt, and multiple of the people that they interviewed committed suicide later. Yeah, it, it, it really is. It, I I think there's I think a lot of these things like we talked before. I mean. There's a contagion effect with a lot, and this has been shown. It's been shown in the case of anorexia, for example, that there is a contagion yeah. effect. Yeah, I, I firmly believe that it will soon be proved that there is a contagion effect with the transgender stuff, and there is a contagion effect with suicide stuff. And I think when society goes down the road of sort of saying this stuff is okay, or in the case of this is not, we're not talking about suicide. We're talking about literally doctors injected this woman with a lethal substance and ended her life, mm. um, and and then there were like family statements confirming her death issued and 8.6 million views for her final tweet. You know, I, I, I think that sends a very dangerous message to yeah. vulnerable young people who have a, a life ahead of them. They choose to pursue it. Yeah. So Molly Pierce, by the way, is the name of that lady from the, uh, the traders who, whose name I temporarily forgot. But I think she's, she's, she's a genuine example of people with massive challenges to overcome in their lives. And there are many like her. And I think it's those are the people who we should be elevating and talking about. Anyway, to move to the opposite end of the extreme, you also wanted to talk about the 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 parent in America who got sent to prison because her son shot a load of people. Yeah, I just just um, the te- place in Wales is called Bridge End. Yes, and uh, there was twenty six suicides um, in twenty in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight, and they basically they all just it was horrendous. Anyway, that's the town. Um, yes, I wanted to talk about Jennifer Crumbly, uh, which is a fascinating legal case, which is basically that she's a mother in Michigan and um, her son carried out a school shooting um, and she's been prosecuted and um, she's been found guilty um, this week of involuntary manslaughter for failing to stop her son from carrying out the shooting, which is a huge like legal case, fascinating Um has obviously legal implications going forward for lots of things, if you think about it. I mean, that, um, you know, and her husband is also facing trial on the same charges. And that basically they were negligent in not noticing the signs, allowing him to have a gun, not really engaging with his emotional state or doing anything about the fact that he might be in some difficulty and that an intervention, even the slightest intervention from them could have um, stopped um, what he did. Um, I think it's super, super interesting. 
um, I think it's kind of unfair in one way. Now, there, in this case, there was a number of like kind of really glaringly obvious things and they gave him a gun, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, like he'd wanted, he'd wanted, um, he'd asked for mental health help. He told them that he was having hallucinations. Um, they say, they say they didn't, they didn't believe him or whatever. Um, and on the morning of the shooting, they went to a school, a meeting about a disturbing drawing that he'd done. And then they cut that meeting short and um, basically they went to work and they declined to take him home that afternoon. And that afternoon he, he committed this horrific crime where he killed a number of his classmates. It's one to watch going forward. Um, obviously, America has a lot of school shootings. But I think it has, like I said, implications for other things. Like where, where does responsibility end and begin for the actions of your child? And are you, um, you know, are you to blame for things that your kids do if you didn't get them the right mental health help? Interesting. Well, I think, you know, you judge these cases on a case-by-case basis, really. But I mean, there are lots of people in this country who would say for years that, like, you know, parents of juvenile delinquents should be held accountable. If your child is leaving your house in the middle of the night and going and breaking windows or doing whatever they're doing, you should be held accountable because you are their guardian. Um, and it's always been controversial, but I think there's a case for it. I mean, the other example is there's a massive ongoing debate at the moment about pit bull dogs, or actually, to be more precise, XL bully dogs and the amount of people they're allegedly killing. Um, and and in, when it comes to dogs, no one disputes that the owner is responsible for them. Um, and that's an established legal principle that if your dog attacks somebody, you can be criminally prosecuted and your dog will be destroyed. Um, and I, I don't think it's a, I mean, if you own a, an XL bully dog and it kills next door's kids, then I think you are criminally liable for the actions of that dog. I don't see why you wouldn't be criminally liable if it's, if it's your under underage child who's on the same thing. Um, especially in circumstances like in this case where there were clear warnings that the child was dangerous. Mm. Um, but it's a it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating one. Um, obviously, it won't bring those kids back. And Americans, in my experience, will do almost anything to tackle gun violence, except consider regulating guns. Yeah. Um, so there's also that angle to it, and I understand why that is. And I'm not I'm not sneering at them for it. But like it's, and it's also, by the way, people who say America sh- Americans should ban guns, I always say, uh, if, you're, if you're going to be the guy who volunteers to go to Kansas and go door to door and say, I'm from the government, here, take back, hand over your gun, good luck to you. I don't think it's practically doable anyway. But it's also fascinating how like they will always find some new lead, some new idea that mm. isn't um, gun control. And I'm sorry if I sound like an American liberal on that, but I mean, I do think it's one where the American Constitution probably produced a result that wasn't foreseeable at the time it was written. Mm. Um, Speaking of Americans, we're kind of running over time, but I do want to talk uh, very briefly at the end of this about uh, Joe Biden, because he's had a bit of a week. He he had meetings this week, he told people, with the President of France, Francois Mitterrand, and with the German Chancellor, Helmut Kohl. The problem being that Francois Mitterrand left office in 1995, Helmut Kohl left office in 1998, and they're both dead. And it, I think it's the most concerning flub from him yet, Sarah, because it's not a case of mixing up your Mer- Merkels and your Macrons. He's like, I'm meeting people who've been out of office 20 years. That, to me, suggests that the concerns about his dementia might really have a basis in fact. Yeah. Like, it's kind of just sad, though, John. I think, like, this They're, is a guy, like, it's, well, it's scary, you know, for, but on a human level, this is awful. Like, this is a person with a family and, you know, if he's struggling and, 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 and I don't have any idea, but I imagine um, that the job he's doing in an election campaign is unbelievably tiring, exhausting. You know what I mean? And like, well, he's not doing it is the thing. I mean, this. I mean, if you and I know people have differing opinions on George W. Bush, right? And I'm not saying I'm not when I what, what I'm saying here is not that George W. Bush was a great president or that he was a bad president, but multiple people who worked with him confirmed that George W. Bush's working day started at six o'clock in the morning. His first meeting was at six fifteen a.m. every morning. His last meeting generally was about about eight o'clock at night in a normal working day. 
in Joe Biden's case, by all accounts, his working day is going from about 11 to 3 in the afternoon. Like, they have massively scaled down the, the demands of the presidency for him. That's objective fact, number one. And, and number two, like, just, like, here's the thing. If and when he loses to Donald Trump in November, then every liberal columnist in the world will be running to write, the Fintan O'Toole will be running to his typewriter to type out the, it was hugely irresponsible of the Democrats to run Joe Biden column. But they're not writing it now because they're afraid of going against the team and being seen as sort of anti-Uncle Joe um, altogether against the orange menace when the guy clearly isn't physically or mentally capable of doing the job he's in. Um, and, and then when he loses, it'll be, it'll be... It's a form of cruelty, this it, it is. And it's also, by the way, it's now too late to replace him. He is. People keep saying, oh, they're going to switch him out for somebody. No. Joe Biden has raised, I think, four, you know, three or four hundred million dollars for his re-election campaign. Uh, if he drops out, that money can't be spent. You can't just take money from Joe Biden's campaign and put it into the next guy's campaign. It, you know, he, he's built the infrastructure. That can't be transferred to somebody else. Uh, any new candidate at this stage would be starting from scratch. I mean, it, it's it's just... It, it's not doable. He's he's going to be the nominee and he's going to have to do, this is what's, what's really fascinating because I think, I still think if it, if it was just Biden versus Trump um, with no wild cards, I still think Biden is the favorite to win re-election. Um, but there is a wild card, which is this guy has to do three debates with Donald Trump in September. So are the debates mandatory or would, would, would not doing them just look so bad? That I think not doing them would look so bad that you kind of have to do them. They're not mandatory, but I think a sitting president refusing to do the presidential debates, especially in the current circumstances, would be a massive red flag. Yeah. I think when he kind of... Hmm? When is the first one due to be, roughly? So the American general election campaign that traditionally kicks off after what's called Labor Day, which is one of those American bank holidays, which is the first Monday in September. So the you, the first debate would usually be around the second week of September. So there's a while to go yet. But the problem is, like, if he does have a sort of degenerative mental condition, uh, which is age-related, it's not going to get better between now and September. It doesn't improve. These things These things only go one way, and they can go one way and they can ex- quickly. They, I mean, my mother-in-law has dementia um severe dementia now she's in a, in a home and the acceleration of that at times has been rapid mm-hmm. so if that if he did have some form of dementia it's like doesn't nine months or seven months or whatever it is from now is so long time yeah i mean my parents are both significantly younger than than joe biden um but they're they're also old enough and i, I say this with love because they're probably listening but like they, they couldn't take on the demands of being president of the United States in their seventies or sixties or all this case. Couldn't do it. Um, and it's 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 it's. Uh, by the way, Donald Trump is seventy eight years of age and has made a few clubs of his own recently, and will be and will be older than Joe Biden is now by the time he leaves office if he wins re-election. So I don't know what the Americans are doing, but yeah, it's um, it's a it's a strange state of affairs. Yeah. Anyway. We'll keep an eye on it. We've gone a little bit over time, so we better say goodbye to the to the folks. Um, thank you all for listening, as ever. Um, Sarah, have you any final thoughts or anything you want to say that we didn't get to cover? No, not really. Um, I'm, you know, not. I don't need to say I'm not cancelling my membership of the National Women's Council because um, it will always be a load of crap, as far as I'm concerned. So you can no. sign up for ten euros, and you get to be a feminist champion. I'm aware that you're able to sign up. Uh, like uh, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. I don't even follow them on Twitter, and I wouldn't. Yeah, I'm not even going to use a rude, a rude phrase, but um, no, it's a, it's a hard no for me, and uh, it always will be a nonsense organization. I was going to say I can't, I can't sign up because I'm a man, but that's actually not true. No, it's not true. Just identify as whatever you want. John. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we will say goodbye to our loyal listeners. We'll see you again next week for another edition of The Week That Really Was. But until then, from Sarah and from myself, have a lovely weekend and we'll see you next week.